Today on Flashpoints, we conclude our week of broadcast from Standing Rock. Today on the show, we'll introduce you to three people who don't usually enter the spotlight, but whose fingerprints are all over this beautiful peace movement that has blossomed on the edge of the longest river in North America. And telling has emerged to tell the world that water is life and that we should be taking a stand at the river and standing for Standing Rock. I'm Dennis Bernstein with Miguel Gabriela Molina. All this straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And this is Dennis Bernstein with Miguel Gavilan Molina. Let me tell you what we're going to do today. We're back in the studio from Standing Rock. Quite amazing. Tomorrow we'll be reporting back to you, those of you in uh, who want to join us in Santa Rosa at the Arlene Francis Center. Uh, that's right off uh, 101 at um, uh, downtown Santa Rosa. But we'll tell you more about that. Um, but we will, what we want to do is... Uh, to share uh, with you today, uh, to introduce you to three people, Miguel, that who who usually don't appear in front of the cameras, who don't usually make speeches, don't give the information flow. All those folks are important, but these are the folks whose fingerprints are all over uh, everything. Absolutely, they're the voices. They're the uh, ones. Uh recognized uh, by the uh, spiritual leaders of the uh, Osheti Shakawin um, camp there at uh, Standing Rock. Uh, these are uh, voices of the um, seven council fires uh, that was evoked, an evoked order, executive order, um, by the American Indian Religious Freedom Act to conduct a ceremony uh, there at... Uh, Standing Rock, and they're the ones that uh, selected who could speak, who were the officials, uh, messenger speakers for the camp there. And, and you know, the camp has grown, as you saw, Dennis, from, you know, four or 5,000 to about 8,000 uh, people there. It's, uh, it's a, a new village has arisen from the ashes and the blood-soaked earth of the Lakota people, of uh, Sitimbo's people, over 140 years uh, or so ago. But um, the chief there, Chief uh, Arvon Looking Horse, uh, is the keeper of the white uh, buffalo calf pipe and uh, spiritual leader for the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota. Uh, and uh, these are uh, different uh, groups of the Lakota nation. And... Uh, Again, these are the people that gave voice and recognition to uh, Johnny, I believe, Hawk, uh, who was the uh, everyday lent a gathering in the uh, uh, the dome, or what we called it, the Thunderdome, where all the different groups and newcomers uh, would arrive and get oriented for the day's uh, schedule, be it actions off the reservations or actions there or seminars or workshops, and there was continual training uh, to train people that were just arriving there to support and to orient them about the rules and uh, of conduct and behavior. Because when you went to the camp, and it says, you know, uh, we entered a spiritual sacred ground. And uh, there were certain rules that had to be abide in respect to Mother Earth itself and each other. So it was... Uh, you know, Johnny Hawk, uh, the one that led those gatherings every morning at 9 o'clock. And then we were fortunate to have um, 
uh, Chief Iron Eyes, who speaks very rarely. And both of these men, individual, Johnny and uh, Chief Iron Eyes, uh, don't speak to media. And uh, Johnny made it clear, I don't, uh, you know, CNN has been out here. Uh, Fox News has been out here. There's been other national programs and news teams that have come out here. And Don Rather's coming out here with his own independent company. He says, I'm not speaking to anybody. But he spoke to us. And a lot of that was his recognizing KPFA as being part of Pacifica. And he himself has family out here, lots of family in the Bay Area. And people don't realize that, especially the East Bay, the largest urban Indian population in this country is between Oakland and San Jose. So uh, he recognized KPFA. He recognized us. He also recognized Don Gonzalez from AIM. So that opened up the access to Chief Iron Eyes and to Tom Goldtooth and to Pancho Ramos and others. It was pretty incredible. It was incredible. So let's do this. Let's listen to... Um those incredible folks whose fingerprints are really all over this, who uh, are responsible for keeping a sprawling pact. I mean, starting at early in the morning, the cars line up, they're coming in. The day that we arrived, there was a semi-truck there with huge timber that uh, four or five or six or seven people would, were then unloading. I almost had my truck towed. Were unloading. And, you know, for days, they're chopping wood, getting ready for the harsh winter that began this day in the Yesterday. last uh, 24 hours, yeah. 48 hours. Right. Uh, so let's listen, and then we're going to come back. We're going to open up the phones. I want to again remind people we're going to be in Santa Rosa at uh, the Arlene Francis Center at 2 o'clock on Sunday. We would really love to see a whole bunch of you there. If you're in the North Bay, please come and join us. But now, let's hear some more voices from Standing Rock. You're listening to Flashpoints. This is Dennis Bernstein with my good brother, Tony Gonzalez of AIM West. And uh, we are here at, uh, well, the resistance, the front line of the resistance, where the, the folks who are guarding the sacred sites, the water, for all of us, are, are gathered once again. And this is now the new world order, it looks like, of uh, Donald Trump. So uh, a lot of struggle ahead. And let's begin this way. Let me ask you to introduce yourself and... Help us just understand what you're doing sitting right here on this bell of hay. My name is Everett Ironize Sr. I was uh, asked by Chairman Dave Archambault to uh, come out and help lead and organize this camp on uh, August 13th. And so I've been here pretty much every day, long days. And so that's my main purpose here. So we're making progress. And and tell us a little bit about um, the unfolding. Did you ever expect it to be this expansive? It's huge. There are many camps now. There are hundreds of camps. I'm looking at a horse stable. What do you think brought all these people here? How would you explain this? Well, I think it's because of those kids, those children that ran 2,000 miles from Standing Rock to Washington, D.C. I think that touched a lot of people. I know it touched me, and it uh, made me more committed to this effort here. So I think that's what brought all the people here, and I'm really... uh, Grateful and appreciate all the support that we've gotten worldwide, the United States, all the tribes that came here, all the people who are here. Some of them have given up their families, their lives, job, not lives, but jobs, homes, and, you know, and their livelihood to be here to support this. And so 
I can't express uh, enough appreciation for that. All right, uh, Dennis Brinson here, and also joining us uh, in this journey is our good friend Tony Gonzalez, co-host sometimes of Flashpoints. Uh, Tony, welcome. Oh, thank you, Dennis, and uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Iron Eyes. Uh, thank you for this interview. And uh, we see here at this camp, this is the, the largest uh, camp, uh, Ociti, Ocete, Shacone. And uh, it's like a a town larger than most towns in, here in North Dakota. And uh, I see, uh, I just saw two truckloads of wood coming in. So that's assuring that the winter, uh, there'll be wood for the, uh, the winter. So in this whole community that is rising, uh, the infrastructure, I see uh, solar paneling, uh, and the sustainability and what uh, other materials do you think would be needed to really uh, solidify or make firm the stability of, of the camp here yeah we'd like to you know maybe have wind turbines and solar you know uh, capability here to help power through the winter and so people have been really uh, generous in don donating generators to us. You know, they're gas burning, but, uh, you, know, you know, until we get a more feasible alternative, you know, that, that's going to have to do for now. So we're preparing, uh, you know, for winter right now. And uh, we're trying to get everybody, in, you know, to conserve the wood that's being brought in because sometimes you bring wood in, everybody takes it, and it's gone right away. So we've got to learn to conserve and get prepared for winter. So... If I had unlimited funds, I would ensure that everybody had a warm tent and all the warm clothing and all the necessities to make it through this winter because I think that uh, what started here as Ocheti Shakoe, all of the seven bands of the Great Sioux Nation coming together and being present here, that could be the start of something uh, that could help us in the future address many of the problems that we have economically, socially, you know, and politically, you know, so we need to get organized better and we need to try to capitalize on what's here and make a better life for all, not only all Indian people, but for everybody. So that's my wish when I see all these people here. Let me ask you, and I'd love you to take a minute or two to give us your personal view of this, but what is at the heart of the matter? What is at stake here? Well, my name, I, I have worked for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe for 35 years. I retired in 2013. I began work in 1978. And my main area was water rights, water resources, natural resources, environment, and uh, many other things that I was involved in. So what really, what really gets my, me involved in this whole thing is that um, if this pipeline is to be constructed, all pipelines leak. You know, not if, but when. And when that does happen, I, I imagine a, a worst-case scenario where... The ice is frozen, there's a blizzard going on, and snow is piled high. And so even though they have a three-minute notice in Texas, I'm really curious as to how they can respond in a timely way to repair that. And by the time they do that, I think that our reservation, if a pipeline, when the pipeline breaks, is going to destroy our, our reservation. And our people, I just learned this morning that um, some people in Canada have a, uh, their river destroyed, and they have to pay for bottled water. And that's what I foresee if this pipeline is built. It'll become polluted, and we're going to have to depend on the Corps of Engineers or the state of North Dakota to provide, or some other vendor to give us water just to drink, just to survive. 
Right now, our water rights are prior and paramount to everybody else's. They have great value, but if they were to destroy that, we would not have a great future here. We would make our land valueless. And so that's what I see. So that's what I fear most. But one of the things that I'm more concerned about right now is the Corps of Engineers, in authorizing the permit for, for the Dakota Access Pipeline, has uh, used a nationwide permit process, which is a fast-track process, and they allowed the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline to do their own environmental assessment. And the Corps of Engineers is the principal lead agency for the United States to be responsible for the operation and management of the Missouri River system. And uh, they were authorized under the 1944 Flood Control Act, which authorized the Pick Sloan Plan, and that resulted in all these reservoirs built up and down the system. And so when Congress authorized the uh, Pick Sloan Plan in 1944, they authorized several purposes that are, you know, that have to be met, like water supply, navigation, power, irrigation, fish and wildlife. Uh, now they added endangered species, you know, so. To me, by the Corps not conducting its own independent assessment as the lead federal agency for this river system, to me that's extremely negli- uh, you know, negligent on their part to not have done that, you know, to do, to do an assessment of their own. And so that's what we're asking is that this pipeline be halted so that the Corps of Engineers can perform their responsibility to not only the tribe that holds senior water rights, but to all the people who depend on the Missouri River for their present and future water needs. So that's what I see. And if they could do that, that would be great. Mr. Ironize, the you, you certainly qualified yourself talking about your water experience with the tribe, water resource person, as you say. And now the, the issue that is here, this camp, this stand is very catalytic across the country, affecting a lot of people. And why this camp? Oh, I mean, there's pipes all across the country. There's oil, gas pipes all across Alaska. But never has there been a stand like this. What, what do you think makes this crucial? I know you have treaties uh, that are that the government is being held to. Maybe other uh, Indian nations in other parts of the country didn't apply their treaties, or or wh- why is this stand so? so uh, powerful now and generating the support i think uh, i think it's because you know this pipeline was slated to go north of bismarck but because of their concerns that it would damage their water supply and the other reasons that they gave are you know and, and so if it's not good enough for bismarck why should it be good enough for us and i say to people that will listen is that if this pipe, if you want all these people to go home, you're tired of the protesting that goes on, move it back to Bismarck so everyone can go home to their families and their homes and enjoy the life that our Creator gave us. So that's what I would say. That That's what kind of drove all of the people to be here, I think, because it's, uh, they recognize that. They recognize that uh, if it's not good enough for Bismarck, why would it be good enough for us down here? Well, that's a good question. And I have another I guess it's a sort of a difficult question. It's hard for me to understand anyway. Um, everybody is quite frightened now, given the uh, new presidency of Donald Trump. People are quite frightened. However, what we've seen so far in terms of the brutality and the mistreatment of the elders happened under Barack Obama. 
an African-American president. So while the white community is quite concerned, and they should be about Donald Trump, do you think in terms of the indigenous communities it's sort of more of the same? Or is there, how do you view this? We had a meeting last night among the uh, headmen and other treaty people last night, and um, we feel that if President Obama was to grant this easement to the Dakota Access Pipeline, that would signal to us that we are totally on our own, and therefore we have to prepare to be on our own, to act on our own, to not only preserve our way of life and our tribes and our homelands, you know, we have to be more proactive, and we have to use our treaties. And But what I want to say is that... Uh, all of the things that, all of the laws that protect people, our civil rights, our human rights, our, you know, everything that we hold sacred, our religious rights, all of those have been uh, ignored. They've been trampled by the state of North Dakota in their protection of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And so, to me, if this is a nation of laws, you know, those laws should be upheld and enforced. But we have no recourse. We, we can't even get our message out to the media. And I really appreciate you guys coming down here to help spread the word about what we're facing down here. And the uh, chairman uh, from Standing Rock had gone to the United Nations and spoke on the issue. And you've had two United Nations representatives or NGO come here and submit a report. Now the, re the report is out that, that clearly described the violations of human rights. Uh, human rights defenders are, are being threatened, intimidated. What, what do you think is the full effect of that United Nations report? Do you think it, it'll, it'll be very effective in, in swaying the minds, particularly of the president? Because right now, uh, the United Nations also has a declaration on the rights of indigenous people, and they are being violated. You know, so where do you think the United Nations fits in on this? Can can they be a force to, you know, for people to be assured that uh, that they can stop they can stop the pipe? I think if they can intervene, however they intervene on situations like this, it would be great if they do that because right now the laws, you know. The federal laws that are supposed to protect us are not enforced. The state laws, which of course are not enforced, so there has to be some law somewhere that would um, compel the United States to live up to its trust obligations, as agreed to under the treaties between the Indian tribes and the United States. You know. And finally, and we do appreciate you spending the time with us. And let's maybe we can end where we began with the young people and the future. Tell us a little bit about what this means, this action, this resistance means to the future of those young people who went across this country to stand for this. I think if we're successful in stopping this pipeline, that would give our people a future, our kids and their kids. So we're not doing this for ourselves today, we're doing it for our future generations. So I think if we're successful, continue to be prayerful and peaceful and unarmed in what we're doing. I hope that can happen, and I hope our Creator listens to us and answers our prayers, so that's what I wish. Oh, and this will be a very important stand, uh, Mr. Ironize, because uh, the world is watching, and 400 million Indians around the world are also struggling in the same 
uh, effort to stop development on their lands. And, and uh, so they're looking here, very catalytic, uh, the type of stands that you take and the young people, and you're calling all everyone, not just Indian peoples, but you're calling everyone who believes in this land, in the sacredness of water uh, to come. So uh, we'll see how the uh, communities around the world, Indian communities, uh, how strengthened they are by, by your position. And um, the Indian peoples around the world have, have literally been overrun by their government. So it's up to this government, the United States, to take that stand. And, uh, you know, so we're with you as well uh, in the support and the stand for Standing Rock. And my, my producer, Frank, Free Will and Frank, just whispered into my ear an important question. In terms of alliances and important alliances, he, he was curious to know about the... Could you describe what the Cowboy and Indian Alliance is? And are you making those kinds of alliances? Is that crucial? Yeah, I think there, there are some people, ranchers in North Dakota and, you know, just people in general that support what we're doing. But uh, because this is mostly a Republican state, they're not too outspoken about it, so... And as far as uh, Indian Cowboy Alliance, that was used back in South Dakota during Wooden D and uh, other issues, other actions, you know, where Indians were protecting their rights. So, and they're good people on both sides, good hearts. And uh, one last thing is that Bobby Kennedy is going to be here on Tuesday, and so hopefully we can he can help us elevate the discussion, get more exposure, and also maybe provide uh, some legal assistance in helping us to to uh, ensure that an environmental impact statement is conducted by the Corps of Engineers. Beautiful. I want to thank you very much uh, for allowing us to be here, for speaking with us, and uh, I tell you, this is a life changer for many people, so it's a beautiful thing to see, especially in the, uh, in the face of a, that guy. Thank you very much for uh, taking time to be here. Appreciate it. Oh. Okay, so my name's Johnny Asran. I come from Hermosa, South Dakota. I'm here in uh, Ocheti Shakoin camp and uh, recognize that I myself am a visitor. I came up uh, about three something months ago because we realized that there was a need for us to figure out how it is we were going to get together again after some 140 plus years. Unfortunately for me, I have a background in, uh, in trauma and trauma recovery terms of mental health and historical trauma in terms of Indian peoples and First Nations peoples around the world. So I answered a call from a couple of Kolas who said we could use some help. Little did I know what that would become. When I first arrived, there were about six flags or eight flags on either side of this road. Now you see there's some 350, maybe 400 flags all the way up and down this Flag Avenue and all the way up and down the 1806 Highway. So you can imagine all the nations that have come since the time I've been here and trying to figure out what it means to be a human being in that kind of space has been a daily prayer. So in dealing with trauma, um, you deal with the trauma of the people and also the trauma to the land, right? That's what makes the difference between indigenous communities and the white Europeans. Can you talk about how you sort of 
dealing with the trauma of the people have been mistreated and the lands being treated. How, how do you think about that? And where do you start when, say, the, 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 the white police come in and start writing on elders' bodies uh, and accusing them of crimes and locking them up in brutal ways here in 2016? You know, that's really um, extraordinary circumstance. So I think I, think I have to pull back a little and say that you know we're common people and for me we, we learn that to do things in a very common common way and it's a struggle to know what that means how to maintain that space so I know that there's in our ways of understanding that we learn and me I'm lucky to have some of that help to learn that there's an emotional mental physical and spiritual space that makes us what we are and how we choose to um, to be in that space is what defines or manifests what we see around us. So we know that there are injuries to our relatives, you know, to this earth uh, in defense of this water. And those injuries occur when our understanding of that relationship is either different or uh, the antithesis of the Eurocentric methodology or, or ideology you're speaking of. And that it's not new and that it's been traveling around in all of our two-legged ways for how long now? And that every action or every gathering or every prayer has been, you know, uh, a question or an invitation to make a space where we can try and co-define what that means. Because when those things happen, it means we didn't recognize each other as human being. We didn't recognize each other as having a common shared interest in terms of our environment, our resources, our families, our communities. When I heard the story about writing on bodies... I started to think about my aunts who used to show up at our family affairs with numbers up their arms who had escaped uh, Nazi Germany. Many of my relatives didn't. Is there something in you that can respond to that? Does that ring true here as these police did that to the elders in this community? So without crying, I'm not sure. Because that, that we would revert... To things that we know are are dehumanizing in 2016 are you kidding me that in 2016 we still see uh, our our relatives our elders as something that should be I don't know dehumanized you know th those examples that we hear about that you're you're giving are well in the history how about those examples for Indian peoples that have been around you know how many people are in this camp that are coming that are only now discovering the mistreatment and the misunderstanding of the relationship between First Nations peoples and those who arrived here. So it is any wonder that that's the first step is to strip away the humanity of who we are, to strip away the identity of who we are, to strip away the cultural practice and, and give it no credence for who we are. I'm just really sad to say that in 2016 we're still making that kind of, that kind of road, I guess. And John, the uh, uh, I understand that uh, in the mornings you have a, a, a gathering at nine in the morning, lay out the agenda for people. And for example, tomorrow, Sunday, uh, interfaith group in Bismarck meeting with all the different uh, religious people in the, as this also being a spiritual movement. What is, what is that message? that you want to convey to the other spiritual and religious groups at this time and are they being helpful uh, up to this point 
That's a great question. Um, I want to just share with you that just a number of days ago, 400 long robes marched to the front because they answered a call to come and bear witness to what was happening. That was extraordinary because it brought up so many things. And yet there they were in their clericals marching to the front and later they marched on the governor's mansion. There's been a call by Chief Orville Looking Horse who did ask if we could start to bring interfaith activities. There's a large one planned for December 4th where we're asking all interfaith uh, clergy to work in their own areas, to ask their own peoples to consider the actions of their own faith groups in either their direct or indirect support of what's arisen here for Standing Rock and what's arisen here for the Ochechisakuin camp as we see it. Uh, tomorrow is the first time that we'll meet with people from the local community of Mandan and Bismarck to put a space down, which is what we're constantly challenged to do from a prayer and ceremonial camp that will allow us to see each other, allow us to begin a process to pray together, to understand what that means, share a meal together, and then visit on what we think it means to be human beings together. So that's, I think, an answer to your other questions, that we have to keep finding resiliency to make these spaces because this is a ceremony, prayerful camp, and yet that message gets lost when we don't make the space where those things occur. Thank you. This is Miguel Gabriela Molina for KPFA Flashpoints. I'm here in front of a um, church, uh, the Universalist, that we've been invited, uh, the Unitarian Universalist uh, Fellowship, uh, gathering of many peoples here today in uh, a prayer circle of different uh, sectors to join together here with a resistance happening at the uh, camp here uh, in stopping the black snake from uh, tearing the land and contaminating the sacred river, Missouri. With us, we have uh, Kingfisher, uh, who offered a song in the prayer circle. And for me, the drum resonates. Uh, for all nations, we have always believed, especially on the border tribes, that wherever the drum beats, we shall liberate. And the drum... Uh, is very sacred to many of us because within the drum itself it has the power to draw those listening into the circle and the majority drums are in a circular mode and to hear your song today Kingfisher it rung deep in my in my spirit the song you offered today what was its offering to the people here and to all of those listening what did it the song that I sang for uh, this group today is a song that um, that we sing in our lodge, our sacred sweat lodge ceremonies, and we use it in prayer. And uh, so it was appropriate, I believe, that, uh, to use that song here as a continued prayer, you know, for um, what we're standing for, what we're standing up for. Um, the reason we're here, and I'm glad that the uh, the church here was uh, um, instrumental in inviting uh, some of the representatives from the camp to um, uh, to share some of the songs and prayers here. And um, I just wanted to continue to add that uh, we most of us that when we sing um, songs with our different um, tribal heritage or different. Uh, tribal languages 
Um, we use a drum. Uh, the drum is a is a is pretty much a universal instrument that um, all indigenous people use, and um, we use it uh, uh, because there, this, these drums are sacred to us. There was an animal that sacrificed its life to be able for us to produce the sound that comes from it. Different drums sound different, and there's different purposes for different drums. You can have a water drum to sing in the peyote meetings. You can have different drums that different people use to pray with. And even the big drum that they use at the powwow, different people use that drum as a healing meth method because when they hear the drum, they, that's what they want to come to, whether it be a powwow or just a, a, some kind of uh, information that, that, that's going to be shared. If someone is there with a drum, they want to hear that music because it brings them close to the earth because of the music that comes from it. This drum is made out of wood and hide. The hide that covers this frame comes from an animal, whether it be a horse or a deer or elk or any other number of animals that are used. That animal sacrificed its life to provide meals for our people and in turn that hide was stretched out of the animal and turned into a drum and its soul is still in this drum and we use it to share our songs and to share what we believe is our way of life. Very powerful and as I was saying earlier Kingfisher the drum has the power to draw those listening into the circle and the drums for the most part are shaped in a circle which is also represents the circle of life. For our listeners in the Bay Area in uh, in what we call Califaslan, is there a song you might share with us and our listeners that brings the power of the drum to them from this sacred land here in North Dakota? There's uh, several songs that, um, um, and different types of songs that can be shared uh, to resonate the inspiration that brought us all here to Standing Rock and one of the things that uh, that I shared in my song that I prayed is a prayer song and I prayed that the creator would, would, would have pity on us it's all we ask for is pity we never ask for anything else we always thank him for the things that he, he blessed us with and one of the things that we that we sing sometimes in our Native American church religion is uh, peyote songs. And so this is a song which, which is uh, sang during the Native American church ceremonies. And this song also is a, is a, a song that thanks the Creator for, and we're praying for Him and we, we thank Him for, for the blessings that we get. And the song that I'm about to sing to you is used in the Native American church religion, and it goes like this. 
That song there is a song which uh, is uh, used in our prayer for within. We use a water drum for water is added to the kettle, and it makes a different song sound. And uh, and the water drums that we use is, is used in the in the church, the Native American church, where we use peyote as our sacrament. And that song there is a, is a song that comes from the heart it comes from the emotions that are brought you know from from thanking the creator for the love that he has shared with with us through the blessings that he gives us the food that we eat the our children all the plants that we use to pray with and the water that we use each and every day we, we, we pray each day and thank the Creator for all our blessings. And most importantly, water is our blessing. That was the voice of Kingfisher uh, sharing with us the sacredness of the drum and giving us the gift of the song. Thank you so much, Kingfisher. We will be here with you, and uh, we're not protesters. We hear our messengers for the water protectors. Water is life. Thank you so much. Water is life, Miguel. What an amazing interview. Thank you for that. Um, and the drum, the voice, the you could just hear it go to another place. Well, the drum has that power to draw you in. And when it's used in ceremony as such, it becomes the heartbeat of the people. And when water is threatened, sacred sites desecrated, rubber bullets, bean bags, pepper spray, swinging batons, trucks being driven into crowds of people, of elders, people getting injured, guns getting pulled out in a menacing way, pointing the guns towards people and then shooting the guns till it's completely out of bullets into the air to frighten people. Uh, you know, the continued violation of treaties and human rights, people being jailed, media communications being, you know, scrambled and jammed. People have come together at Standing Rock. And we haven't seen, we witnessed a village rising from the ashes of the old Lakota camp there over a hundred years ago. And, you know, in some ways it is being looked at in historical terms that this is the largest rising and gathering of Indian peoples 
in the last hundred years. Yes. And, you know, they have been joined by not just Indian nations, but also environmentalists, social activists, and hundreds of young people of all colors, of the sacred four colors, black, brown, red, white, yellow, all have come together. And, you know, as you know, they've been camping out there on federally, on federal land, seeking to halt the, what's called the black snake, the pipelines, destruction and destruction of the land and the construction of it. Which, if people don't know, it's almost completed, except for that section there in North Dakota. That's where it's come to a halt. And there's been a lot of violence perpetuated by police, security forces, military, and vigilantes, and just outright racist bigotry. But uh, there's been a lot of criticism about the heavy-handed crackdown. And, you know, Dennis... This past, um, excuse me, uh, Monday when we took the drive out to the res and then back to Brismark for the action around the state capitol building and the the federal federal building, building, that march, that walk, the spiritual prayer walk, was to ask the question, how are those three, four hundred incarcerated and detained doing? Are they okay? Some of them have been denied phone calls. Some of them have been denied access to their families. Their families, the elders, everybody's concerned. And that's what that was about. Let us know how those incarcerated in iron cages, are they fine? Have they received medical attention? If they needed it, are they being fed? Are they barefooted on bare, cold cement floors? Uh... Are they crowded in iron cages? What are the conditions? Nobody knows, Dennis. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about some of those protectors incarcerated uh, are in degrading inhuman conditions. We don't know. That's what that was Monday. Tell us and free our people. Uh, And, of course, bringing attention to the North Dakota and to the country because on that day, there was over 200 two to three hundred actions across the United States and hundreds around the world supporting the Osseti Ishakawi camp at Standing Rock, supporting the efforts there by the people to stop this black snake from destroying the environment. When we were there Monday at at the protest and prayer, it wasn't a protest. People, the media labeled it a protest. It was not a protest. It was prayer. Not just for the tribes there and for asking the government and the Department of the Interior and the administration to show human kindness, to recognize the treaties, to recognize those agreements made by the tribal councils with the U.S. government forces and its representatives, you know, to stop this and to listen. As of Monday, there was reprieve. Uh, about not resuming. Everybody thought that that day was going to resume the construction again. Well, it didn't. We saw that. But what's happened since, Dennis? Well, and we're going to be talking about some of that um, at the Arlene Francis Center in Santa Rosa on Sunday at 2 o'clock. 
Um, that's right off 101. Those of you in the North Bay, very easy to get to. Right off 101 at downtown Santa Rosa. Uh, it's just uh, three minutes away from that uh, exit. Um, you can Google it. Uh, we will be there. Um, we're going to uh, our photographer, uh, Jennifer Hasegawa is going to be there. We're going to see if we can figure out how to show a few slides. Uh, and we want to try and tell people uh, what it, what's going on, more about what we saw, uh, because now, as we know, uh, there has been a postponement of the, of the digging, but uh, the winter is there, times are tough, and solidarity is crucial. And, and one of the things that we were asked, uh, Dennis, by Johnny from the uh, Dome, well, the planning coordinator for the camp there, was that, um, you know, there's a lot of, he mentioned to me that over 37 websites have popped up on the Internet collecting donations and asking for money. And they, as of yet, and the Tribal Council, uh, has recognized the Oseti Shakowi camp and their uh, uh, website and line as a one to where people want to make donations, this is where they can go to for direct donations. It's called paypal.me slash Oseti, that's O-C-E-T-I-S-A-K-O-W-I-N camp. And people can go to www.osetigawincamp.org. That's O-C-E-T-I-S-A-K-O-W-I-N camp. One word. Osetishakawicamp.org. And, um, you know, they said that uh, there are even, you know, countless events have been happening across the country. But he asked us to please ask our listeners and people out there in support and in solidarity to not send blankets or clothing or food. Uh, You remember, Dennis, there was a giant tent there that was, you know, probably 14, 18 by maybe 34. Humongous tent and hundreds of boxes full of clothes. And they were asking people that were leaving the res, leaving Stanley Rock. They would need some clothes. Please take some of these boxes out of here with you back to your communities and to thrift centers. So uh, what people need there is real support. They need resources and and funds to winterize the camp. Uh, Let me uh, tell you that if you want to start a bit of the dialogue that we're going to be continuing on Sunday at 2 o'clock in Santa Rosa at the Arlene Francis Center. Um... You can give us a call at 510-848-4425, or 1-800-958-9008, 1-800-958-9008, or 510-848-4425. You know, it was was quite different when we were uh, in Bismarck for that protest, uh, that protector's action. It was quite different than the protests that we've seen here in the Bay Area. It was focused, and it was a way that welcomed these 
most heavily armed cops and federal police with the helicopters overhead. It was all the way through, all the way through, it was an opening of the heart. It was, um, it was a prayer with a song. And to hear those indigenous, the indigenous community, the veterans who went to the wars to defend America, to talk about that and how they felt about that and what it meant and what they were asking now in return, which is really ultimately respect and to release or to each, to at least report to the people that the folks inside are safe, that the people who have been taken in aren't being tortured. It's a very difficult time. And even though it was the ultimate in peaceful, in peaceful prayer and speaking, the police, I mean, I, I was just, you know, you. I don't know if you saw it. I can't remember who was right with me. But I'm just standing there watching what's going on. And all of a sudden, I'm almost on my ass because some cop knew we were there to document it, to bear witness. And the message was, we don't want any of you here. And so he took a shot. Um, that's what happens to people there all the time for no good reasons, gratuitous violence. I think we've got Michael uh, joining us. Michael, you're on from Berkeley, I believe. Oakland. Oakland. Thank, thank you. Um, thank you for your coverage. I, I really appreciate it. I just got back Tuesday from three weeks at Osheti Shakuin camp myself. Um, and I, I just want to add one little piece. Maybe you covered this earlier in the week. I don't know, but um, the people you interviewed and you yourselves really emphasized the peaceful and prayerful atmosphere there. And one of the most moving things to me was... Um, hearing elders at some of the ceremonies pray for and encourage us to pray for not only those who were acting as water protectors, but for those on, quote, the other side. Um, they emphasized that it's not a contest of good versus evil, but a contest of wisdom versus ignorance. And they prayed for the cops, you know, including those ignorant enough and and misguided enough to be really cruel and inhumane. They prayed for the DAPL workers, the pipeline workers. They prayed for the owners of the companies who are so spiritually misguided that they're doing this. And, um, I, you know, I only saw the Southern Christian Leadership Council's work during the Civil Rights Movement and Martin Luther King's work from, from a distance. But, you know, this I, I think part of the power of this movement comes from that, from that sort of attitude that, um, you know, we're all humans and some of us are graced with knowing right and some of us are even more spiritually sick than the rest of us from this culture. And it was just, it was really heartwarming right. for me to, to see that. Well, thank you. Those are uh, good words. Uh, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this is Flashpoints. Uh, we, the team, have just uh, returned uh, from Standing Rock, and uh, we will be in Santa Rosa tomorrow at the Orleans Francis. Sunday. Sunday. Forgive me. The Sunday. 20th. My brain is still mixed. Sunday, 2 o'clock at the Orleans Francis Center. 
And we're taking a few phone calls now to begin that dialogue. Uh, and the number is 510-848-4425. I'm forgetting it. Oh, my God. 510-848-4425 or one 800 Nine five eight nine zero zero eight. Join us, David. You're on with Miguel and Dennis. Oh, hi, Dennis. Miguel. Uh, yeah, David Grace over here in the city. Hey, David. Hey, you, you know doing? what I wanted to ask about, and I haven't got a clear picture. Is uh, I, I heard Iron Horse talking about uh, the fast tracking of that pipeline across the state, and I'm wondering if that involves that uh, corrupt Supreme Court re- decision called Kilo. Was that? Uh, because I can't imagine those ranchers giving up right away to a pipeline as easily as that. Um, did Kilo uh, basically steal that land for that pipeline? You know, I really don't know the answer to that. But um, I will find out. But, yeah. but what we do know is some of those farmers, some of those farmers uh, in the direct uh, vicinity of the area there of Standing Rock uh, have have called themselves the Cowboys that have joined the Indians in stopping that pipeline. Now, I don't know if they're directly connected to Kilo, but a lot of the local ranchers and farmers there also do not want the pipeline. Because if there is a leak, as Chief Iron Eye said, it will contaminate and affect over 17 million people. And if there is, a pi- and this is what everybody said, and if there is a pipeline, there will be a leak. There are no ifs and or buts. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Greg, uh, you're on Flashpoints. Uh, I assume you're talking to me. It's actually Craig. That's Craig, right. sorry. No problem. I answered it. <laughs> Either one, right? All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, first, a quick question. I'm, sh- I'm sure you can't answer this, but but I want to put it out. Um, and then I have a, a, I think, a very important um, suggestion, shall we? Okay, say, let's do it quickly. We've got a bunch of p- folks in just yes, a yes, minute or two. The question that came to mind, and I haven't had time to look it up, is how many other places are there, let's just say in North America, where pipelines have been routed under rivers or lakes, and what is the history with regard to that in terms of leaks? And I think that's a very pertinent question that yes. needs to be uh, brought I'll up. I'll try and answer it's, that. We'll answer okay, that. Now, now, here's the other thing. Okay. This is important. Quick. The first man that you spoke to, who was the water expert, he said in passing something about uh, how important it was to get uh, attention f- from the news media. Now, the local media up in that area is uh, not doing so good as far as what I've seen. Uh, the national media has been very spotty in their attention, and that's where I think we should focus uh, a very serious, concerted effort to bombard them, demand that they cover the story, that they stay on the story, and, and, and not, not let up on that, because they are basically, as you know, ignoring it with, with very few exceptions. Well, by the way, uh, what, listen, where are you from? Where are you calling from? I'm calling from uh, Mariposa. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, Miguel, did you, we just have a second left. Miguel, did you want to comment? Well, I, I just wanted to say that there are actions. We don't have the information right now with us, but we know, for instance, there was a group of nor- from northern Texas there who are battling an oil pipeline company that wants to do the same thing they're doing in North Dakota to a river within Texas. Uh, we've also know that, of course, the, that whole battle that went on in the last few years against the, you know, tar sands pipeline. I mean, those are, again, native 
efforts that, that everyone has joined in, not just an Indian issue, but a human rights issue and an issue with the environment to stop those pipelines. We know also just south of the border in the state of Sonora, once you cross uh, Arizona into, into Mexico, the Yaqui Nation, which is on both sides of the border, have been battling oil companies for wanting to destroy rivers, not just to go under them for you know for oil, but also to damn them. So there is actions everywhere, uh, not just within the United States, but around the world, you know, dealing with water and stopping the oil companies. You can go to the Amazon, the beginnings at, you know, where Peru and Ecuador and the indigenous tribes there through Pachamama groups have been fighting to stop the oil companies. You know, we see it also in Africa in some of those areas. So the effort just isn't local, but we will get into more Pacifics later. All right. We are absolutely out of time. That's Miguel Gabriela Molina. He made this trip possible and more amazing than I can imagine. We can and would love to meet you in Santa Rosa Sunday at 2 o'clock at the Arlene Frances Center off 101 downtown Santa Rosa exit. Come join us. Let's talk.